All right, Jesus in the shadows. So Advent means arrival or awaiting the arrival, and we have been looking at in this series different passages in the Old Testament that foreshadow the arrival of Jesus. So Advent uh, in the Old Testament means awaiting the birth of Jesus. Advent in our time means awaiting the second coming of Jesus. And so oftentimes what you'll find is there are parallels between the observations we can draw from the people of the Old Testament and our time today because we're both awaiting the arrival of Jesus. So we are continuing in our Advent series today. Today's verse is in Isaiah 54, and it's one verse, the first verse. I'll read it for us, and then we'll pray. O sing, barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than her who is married, says the Lord. Lord, help us to uh, just have a, a feast of your word. Um, even as we prepare for a meal after this, God, would we begin feasting now on the truth that's in your word, on the encouragement that's here for us, on the discipline and the correction and the life that it can bring, God. Help each and every one of us in this room or listening online or listening later to be encouraged and strengthened by the idea of your coming. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as was mentioned, um, we are going to share a meal after this, and um, it's going to be a bit of a different service today. We are um, called by name Eternal City Church. We are not Eternal Sermon Church, so I will try to keep it short so we can all get to the food and um, enjoy some time together. This sermon is in this series is different today because we're obviously celebrating the arrival of Jesus and it coincides with the Christmas season, which those of you who have maybe been hearing some of the messages in the past know that that's a season I very much enjoy. Um, I like the candy, I like the lights, I like the food, I like getting together with family and friends, I like giving and receiving gifts, all of it. And of course, celebrating the arrival of Jesus are all good. Um, one particular thing that I really enjoy about this season are the movies. Uh, I try to sit down and watch a few good Christmas movies every time uh, of year. So obviously, you can't talk about Christmas movies without talking about A Christmas Carol. The Muppets version, in my opinion, is the best one. You have The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. You have The Christmas Story. You have Home Alone. Uh, some of you are big into the Hallmark Christmas movies, and that's a rabbit trail that we will not get down. But there are many, many in that Hallmark, Hallmark and Lifetime, and I, you know, whichever one you prefer, the Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movie genre is a whole other uh, sermon in and of itself. But then there's one that I have seen on TV many times, but I admit, um, as a Christmas fan, I have not seen all the way through. And it's a pretty significant one, and that movie is Elf. So <laughs> Elf um, is a Christmas classic. I haven't seen it all the way through. It's one of those things that's been on TV so many times. I've seen it on TV so many times that I feel like I've seen it, but I haven't sat and watched it all the way through. But the general gist I get with the movie Elf is that Will Ferrell is this elf that comes from uh, uh, the North Pole, right? And he's on Earth, 
and he has this uh, happiness and joy about him because Santa's coming. And so part of the, the gist of the movie is Will Ferrell is obviously a, a full-size grown man wearing an elf suit, just being really happy and joyful. And that's part of the juxtaposition because he's around people who are just grinding it out in everyday life and they're working and just doing things that aren't so fun. And Will Ferrell has this just happiness and joy about him, the whole movie that's part of the comedic, uh, I think, comedic delivery of it. Now, he's around everyday people who are grinding it out, and he's super happy and joyful. And a question I have for us is, have you ever been around someone like that? Whether it's 5 a.m. or 11 a.m., or it's Christmas, or it's summer, or it's spring, they're just always on. They're always happy. They have an unshakable joy. That uh, kind of mood or person can certainly be contrived in a movie like Elf, and there can be a comedic aspect to it. But as I look at our passage today, it's hard not to see some parallels. Like I said, Advent is a time where we reflect on the arrival of Jesus, but I think our passage today tells us something particularly about Advent, and I think it tells us that Advent can bring us unshakable joy. Again, Isaiah 54, I'll just read the first part of it. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. That first part of the verse, in the CSB, it says rejoice. So that's where we can get the term joy from. Sing or rejoice despite your difficult circumstance of not being able to bear children. Now, before we break this down too much, we need to understand a bit of the context of Isaiah because we're in an Advent series and we haven't been talking about this particular book, Isaiah. Uh, God's people during the, the time of the writing of Isaiah were ruled by four different kings. So four separate men who ruled over God's people during that time. And here's the, the general thing with kings, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you've read about any of the kings, you'll know that the kings are not perfect people. They make some good decisions and they make some bad decisions, right? Proverbs 29.2 puts it this way. When, the righteousness, uh, when righteousness increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So Proverbs gives us this clear contrast about kings that when you have righteous decisions by righteous kings, good things happen. When you have wicked decisions by wicked things, you get groaning, you get people who are not getting what they want. Now think about that, those of you who have been with us through the context of what we've been studying in Romans. According to Romans, how many people are righteous? Zero, right? No one is righteous. We, we study this in Romans. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So when you read Isaiah, you're reading about a people who are ruled by kings who are not ultimately righteous. They may make a good decision here or there, but ultimately they fail the people. Thus, Proverbs says, the people groan, the people need encouragement. And what people need ultimately is not another earthly king, not another earthly ruler, but what the people in Isaiah's day need is one who is truly righteous. And side note, that's still the case today. We don't need another ruler. We don't need another president. We don't need another governor or official who can make some good decisions that will benefit people. But ultimately, earthly leaders will fail us. And the reason they'll fail us is because they're not truly righteous. That's why elsewhere in Isaiah, he encourages the people, Isaiah 9. I love that verse. It's on the wall over there somewhere. We read it before the sermon today. But Isaiah 9 talks about, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The child who was born, 
the son who was given, the one who will be truly righteous, he will bring about the, rule, uh, the, the rejoicing that Proverbs points to. Now, the people of, of Isaiah's day weren't there yet, right? They were awaiting the birth of Jesus. And we're not there yet because we're awaiting the second coming of Jesus. So when you read the Old Testament, the child has not been born. They're awaiting the arrival of the king. So the job of Isaiah, the prophet, is to encourage the people to be faithful while they wait. The truly righteous ruler isn't here. The truly righteous kingdom is not here. It hasn't come yet. So prophetic literature, uh, in a way, almost reminds me of when I was growing up, there'd be these commercials for Disney World. And Disney World was the arrival of being fully immersed in the magic of Disney. Now, of course, when I was a kid, you could have your Disney toys, uh, you could have Disney VHS tapes, depending on your age, you could have Disney DVDs or Disney Plus, depending on where you fall in that, right? So you have a, a little taste of Disney, but you don't have the fullness of it. And so when the commercial comes on, it's like, You'll be there, fully immersed in the magic of Disney. You'll get to shake Mickey Mouse's hand and get an autograph from Goofy, and all the things that you dream of will be true. That was the encouragement that was given through the commercial. And what would any good parent do? Any good parent would use that future promise to instill in me present-day obedience. So, the, of course, my parents would say, all right, keep your toys clean. Don't argue with your brother or your sister. Do what I tell you. Do your chores. And one day... We'll take that vacation. One day, we'll be there. One day, you'll be immersed in the magic of what it means to be in Disney. So the future promise is motivation to instill present-day obedience. Prophetic writing is a bit like that. You have a bit of it now. You have a bit of this kingdom now, but clean up your act because the real thing is coming. The real king is coming. The real kingdom is coming, and that real king is Jesus, and his real kingdom is coming. So this is where Isaiah comes in. Isaiah 54, again, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud for you who have not been in labor. So Isaiah is saying that there's a reason for a barren woman, a woman who can't bear children, to rejoice. There's a reason to burst in the song, even though you don't have a child. Now, to understand the context here, being barren in this time period between 600 and 700 BC is a heavy load, and it's especially a heavy load for women. Many people lived off agriculture and farming. So if a couple is unable to conceive, it's not just that we don't have children running around. We don't have workers. We don't have people to help around the house. There's no one to carry on the family legacy. When you get older, there's no old elderly facility for you to go into. So if you don't have children, that could mean that you have no one to take care of you. So being able to conceive or being unable to conceive or not have kids was not just, I can't have kids because I, I want kids. It's, I might not have provision and protection and a legacy to carry on. So we, we, we need to think about and draw that implication when you read Isaiah 54, when it says, rejoice, barren one, break forth into song. If you put yourself in the shoes of a barren couple reading that, it's saying, you're under the rule of a king who may or may not be following God's decrees. You're in a pretty vulnerable position. And if you can't have kids that will protect you and be able to carry on your legacy, just rejoice, sing, burst into song. You're probably reading that thinking, whatever you're telling me to rejoice over better be worth it. Because right now, my circumstances are pretty bleak. Now the hope that Isaiah is pointing his readers to uh, and is discovered and, and foreshadowed in the lives of some of the barren women, the women who struggled to conceive that you can read about in the Old Testament. So this is the second part of Isaiah 54. I'll go back a bit. The children of the desolate one 
will be more than the children of she who was married, says the Lord. Now we're going to fly through some of these examples, but if you look back at some of the Old Testament women who struggled to conceive, I think we'll begin to see some of the hope that Isaiah is pointing us to. The first one is Sarah. This is in Genesis uh, 15, Genesis 17, 15, excuse me. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall uh, not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of, uh, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. Your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, at this point, Abraham and Sarah had already disobeyed God, and they had a son through uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar. That's where the name Ishmael comes from. But God maintains that Sarah, at 90 years old, will have this covenant son named Isaac. And if we continue in the line of Sarah, Sarah does have Isaac. We continue in the line of Isaac, and his wife, Rebekah, will read a similar struggle. This is Genesis 25, 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Anyone know the names of Rebekah's sons? Two of the famous ones? Jacob and Esau, right. So when you read the account of Jacob and his wife, Rachel, again, you'll observe a struggle to conceive. When Rachel saw that she had borne no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld this fruit from your womb? Now, I don't think we can read Rachel's plea here as just pure exaggeration, that she's just making this up. Give me children or I die. As we said, bearing children in that context had significant impacts on the quality of your life, especially for women, because you had people who, uh, especially if you had a son, someone who could protect you. So after a lot of missteps, you can read in Genesis 30, there's a, a ton of missteps that Jacob and Rachel make. And when I say missteps, I mean getting women pregnant that you shouldn't get pregnant. Uh, you'll read towards the end of Genesis 30 this. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Oh, I'm a little ahead here. I don't have that one. And she conceived and, a son, and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So again, God is faithful, and he allows Rachel to conceive. So the question we have to ask here is, how does God's faithfulness to these three women apply to the readers of Isaiah's writings, and how does it apply to us? Isaiah readers or any of us could read that and say, well, it's great, God provided for those women, but how do I know how this applies to me? Let me just say that the way we answer this question is really important. So many people read the Bible, and they read about Abraham and Sarah, or Isaac and Rebekah, or Jacob and Rachel, and they think, well, I guess that means I have to have faith like them in order for God to do what I want him to do. Meaning if I want kids and I have faith and I believe, God will give me kids. Or if I want a job and I have faith and I believe, eventually God will give me a job. And it could be anything, right? It doesn't have to be kids or a job. It could be opportunity or money or career or friends or whatever it might be. And if we read the promises of God to other people 
and read them as examples for us, we could be setting ourselves up for failure. The reason I say that is because I know a lot of faithful believers who want kids and don't have them or want jobs and don't get them or want opportunities and don't get them or want uh, certain things to happen in their career and they don't get it. What do we say to them? You should have believed more. You should have tried harder. You should have been more obedient. Certainly there's a case for us to have the wisdom that Proverbs talks about that might bring about certain decisions in our lives. But what we can't do is say that if you really believe God and have a certain amount of faith, I will guarantee this outcome in your life. I will guarantee that you'll get what you want. And here's why we can't do that. Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, all have major missteps. If Genesis 30 were happening in our church today, it would be a disaster. God was faithful to these men and women, not because of their moral example, but because of his faithfulness. There are things about almost anyone in the Old Testament that you could certainly admire. But if any of our members came to me and said, you know, I was really wanting a child and we were struggling to conceive, so I just found this girl and I impregnated her, I hope you're okay with that. I would not be okay with that. And you probably shouldn't be okay with that either, right? I'm not gonna commend them for their moral example or set them up as someone in the church to say, follow after this person. So when you read about God's promises in scripture, we have to ask, what is God promising to deliver? We can't make the mistake of imputing upon God something that we said we wanted and then be mad when he doesn't give us what we asked for, which is something that he never promised. Oftentimes, the way to avoid this mistake, keep reading. Keep reading, finish the passage, finish the paragraph, finish the chapter, finish the the whole context of what you're trying to understand so you can make sense of what the Lord is promising. So God's promise here is not directly connected to every woman who struggles to conceive. If they have enough faith, they'll be able to have children. The promise here is connected to what we read all the way back in the beginning with Sarah. You see it so beautifully come together in the Gospels. Remember what God said to Sarah back in Genesis. As for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now look what happens when you read Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 2. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Those names should sound familiar to you. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. So Matthew 1 starts like this, and if you read right past it, you might miss it, but it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What that means is that the king is here. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The king promised to come from Sarah's line. And here's why that's good news. Jesus' righteousness, his rule, his reign are all certain. We just sung and celebrated that. Our circumstances, the things we want out of life are not. And even if they are, when we pass away, they're gone. The jobs, the finances, the careers, all the things we want, we don't take them with us when we die. But the righteousness that the people in the Old Testament want from their kings is ultimately found in Jesus. The leadership that the people of the Old Testament and that we want from our leaders is found in Jesus. The government will be upon his shoulders. So how does the children of the barren woman have more than the children of the woman who conceives? Because Jesus' reign makes us all family. There's lots of places in the Bible where we can say this, but Romans is one. And actually, we'll probably study this passage later on. Romans 8.15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, if we're sons and daughters of God, guess what that makes us all? Brothers and sisters. Jesus makes this more clear in Mark 3, where he says to a crowd who's coming after him who his brother and his sister is. Jesus says in Mark 3:31, Jesus' brother and mother and sister arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked and stared in a circle around him. Here, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. So the reason that the children of the desolate one are more than she who was married, again, is because Jesus' reign makes us all one big family. And Jesus promised to come from the line of the barren woman who we read about not just, doesn't just make us family in eternity or now, but it also makes us family in eternity. You read about this in Revelation 7, 9, and it says, after this, this is a prophetic vision of what it looks like when Jesus comes and fully reigns. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, they were wearing ripe robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. People from across the globe, across time periods, will worship Jesus together, forever, free from sin, free from division, free from the struggles of this current world. That's why Advent brings us unshakable joy. And if you're a believer in Jesus today, that is your reality. This is your Disney World moment. This is your Disney World commercial that you can look forward to. This is the future encouragement that can instill present obedience. And it's not, Jen, again, it's not just a, a one day that this will happen. It's something that can motivate us in the here and now to live in light of the hope we have. So I'll give us a couple practical applications and then we'll, we'll close. The first is this, and it's really obvious from the first word of the passage. Sing. Sing. It doesn't say one day you'll sing. It doesn't say sing when things go your way. It says sing. Another way you can translate it, and I think the CSB translated this, translates it this way, is rejoice. In Hebrew, the word can be translated simply to give a loud cry. Believers in the New Testament are encouraged the same way. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Again, it doesn't say sing or rejoice when things go your way. It doesn't say sing or rejoice when you get to heaven. It says sing in the here and now. This is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. So what that looks like for us in the here and now, when we get the opportunity to gather together and sing songs, you should actually sing. And I'm not saying you need to break into a solo and take the mic from someone and, and, and sing in a loud, obnoxious voice, but you should actually sing. Because to take part in singing is to display the hope that Isaiah was calling his readers to. Things may not be going your way in life. Life might feel barren for you right now. Maybe feel hard or filled with anxiety. Even still, we can rejoice. We can sing in the barrenness of life. Because Advent... Jesus brings us unshakable joy. Now, this is not a, a fake it till you make it kind of thing. And especially during the Christmas season, I feel like we can be told to just put on a happy face and pretend like everything's good. The singing and the rejoicing that the Bible calls us to is not that. 
the reason that the barren woman and the people of Isaiah's day and all of us can rejoice and sing is because God has delivered on his promise to make the children of the desolate one more than the one who is married. In Christ, we're all family. And in his kingdom, we'll be together rejoicing forever as one big family. And I don't know about you, sometimes I forget that. The difficult things in life feel like they'll never end. I need to stir my emotions out of the funk that they're in, or I just need to be faithful in the funk and just kind of sit with it and be faithful in the times where life feels hard, where life feels barren. And the only way I can stir myself out of that is to sing, remember a song. Music and song are, are really powerful vehicles. They can embed feelings and emotions and ideas deep, deep, deep into your subconscious. The reason I know that's true most of you can finish this line. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm loving it. A lot of you want McDonald's right now. A lot of you are hungry. Let me do another one. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. That commercial came out in the 90s, I think. It hasn't been on the air in decades. And as soon as I said the first few notes, most of you remembered it. We'll do one more. Only some of you know this one. Temporary layoffs. Easy credit ripoffs. Scratching and surviving. Hanging in a chow line. Ain't we lucky we got them. Good times. Good times. So you probably haven't memorized the McDonald's jingle. That Kit Kat commercial hasn't been on, in, on TV since the 90s, and I don't think any of us has watched an episode of Good Times in a while, but it's there. The moment I said the first few notes, it came to your mind. So if music and song are that powerful, that songs that you haven't heard in years just come to mind when you hear the first few tunes, what better songs and what better ideas to ingrain in your mind than the unshakable hope and unshakable joy that we have in Jesus? That's why you should sing. You may not have what you want in life right now. Things may be difficult. Again, this isn't a fake it till you make it kind of saying where you sing and you can put yourself into a happy mood. If you read the Psalms and some of the poems in the Old Testament especially, they're difficult. They're hard to get through. There are laments in the Bible. So singing is not just singing things to make yourself happy. We can also realize that things are hard, that life is hard. Again, especially during the holidays. Some of you are probably celebrating this holiday season with a loved one that you lost, and this is the first time that you're celebrating without that person, and it's hard. Some of you are probably going through a holiday season right now where with COVID and just the tough time we're in, you're not sure if you're gonna be able to see your loved ones. That's hard. Some of you have strained family relationships where this holiday season that's supposed to be happy is just tough because it brings together and brings to mind all the strain that you have in your family. That's hard, and that's okay. The Bible still calls us to and allows us to rejoice even in things and even when things are hard. One of the songs that I've, I've really clung to during this season, and I like it because it is slow, it acknowledges the pain of this current world. O come, O come, Emmanuel. I'll just read a, a couple lines from it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Life can feel lonely. Life can feel barren. There's a lot to mourn, and we can mourn, but even in our mourning, 
we can rejoice like Isaiah encourages us. You know the greatest commandment when Jesus asked him, or when someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, do you remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There's a book I read where an author named Andy Crouch talks about singing as one of the most profound ways that we can obey that greatest commandment this side of heaven. Because when you sing, you're engaging your mind, your body, you're using your vocal cords, things that God has blessed you with if you're able. When you sing, you're preparing yourself for what it will be like when we can indeed love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the first way that we can make our unshakable joy practical, rejoice, sing. The second way is this, we can be family. Isaiah 54 says that the children of the barren woman are more than she who is married. And we talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, how he's the promised one who comes in the line of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, the woman who all struggled to conceive. And the reason we're all family is because Jesus makes us family and we become a part of his family by obeying his commands. Again, this is another time Jesus makes this clear that we are family, that we are brothers, sisters in the here and now. Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there was no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice he says, in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers. So Advent brings us an unshakable joy, but it does not bring us an unreachable joy. And just like rejoicing, rejoicing is not for when we get to heaven only, having brothers and sisters is in the here and now. So if you look to your left and you look to your right, that's your sibling. The question then is, as a Christian, is not who are my brother, who are my sister and my mother, it's am I being a good sibling? Now we could do a whole entire sermon series on what it means for us as believers to live together in light of the hope that Jesus brings us in light of the fact that he makes us all one big family. Um, I will say and commend to you a resource uh, that does this very well. It's a book called Life Together by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer and it was written in 1939. Now most times when I talk about a book, I can say this book is in the bookstore. Brett, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think this book is in the bookstore. I'll just make a suggestion. Maybe we get it. I think it's a good read. So maybe one day we'll be able to say that it is in the bookstore, but it's not. But it's a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Again, he wrote this in 1939. In this book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the biggest struggle towards Christians living as the family that Jesus makes us. And I think he's right about what he says in 1939. I think it still applies today. You know what he said? 1939, he said the biggest obstacle to Christian community, it's not politics, it's not COVID, it's not money, it's not race, it's not cultural issues, it's dreams. Listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their dreams set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. 
It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. So here's what I think he's getting at. We come into community with other believers and we get these ideas about what community will be like. And maybe some of them are good. You know, I want to be around people who love Jesus. But then sometimes we add additional requirements on top of that that aren't in the Bible. So we can say being in community for me means I want to be around people who love Jesus, but I also want to be around people who love Jesus and never offend me or who love Jesus and share my political views or who love Jesus and are easy to talk to, who love Jesus and can help me advance in my career. And it's those things that we put after the love of Jesus that I think are the dreams that Bonhoeffer is referring to. Again, if you look at Jesus' words in Mark, he promises us brothers and sisters in his name, but he does not promise we'll have brothers and sisters who won't offend us, brothers and sisters who won't challenge our politics, brothers and sisters who will be easy to get along with. He doesn't promise that the Christian community won't be hard. So unshakable joy in the here and now means pressing into community, even when it's hard even when it's not what you thought it would be. Make the effort to be that brother or sister that Jesus promised. In this season, this can mean inviting someone over to your house for Christmas or for a holiday meal. It could mean asking someone simply, how, how can I pray for you? How can I get to know what's going on in your life so I can at least be aware of how I can support you? It could mean a lot of things, but it should mean something in the here and now. Advent brings us an unshakable joy. And even when life feels barren, we can rejoice and we can sing. We can live in community with each other as we await the coming of our King because his arrival brings us unshakable joy. And as we close, what better way to live this out? We're gonna sing. We're gonna sing and then we're going to share a meal together as a family. But I don't want this to be an empty ritual for you. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, uh, normally what we do during this time is take communion. We're not going to do that this week. But normally we take communion as a way to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then he had his body broken, his blood shed for us. And although he never sinned, he was punished for our sins so that anyone can turn from their sin, trust in him, and have this unshakable joy. If you want to do that tonight, talk to myself or Chris or Eddie or whoever brought you. One of the elders would love to talk to you if you don't know who to talk to. And we would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But tonight, um, we're going to celebrate, we're going to sing, and then we're going to share a meal together. So I think the candles are coming around now. I'll remind you of the, uh, the wise sage advice that was given around candle lighting. Turn the unlit candle on the lit candle so you don't pour wax on somebody. And... Uh, yeah, let's sing. Let's remember Jesus. I'll pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for your perfect life. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your example. We thank you that we can have joy in this evening, even though it is difficult for many of us this year who have lost loved ones, who have just had a hard year, who have had expectations missed, who have had things that we thought would work out that didn't work out, God. Help us to rejoice faithfully, even though that might feel tough for us in this season. Help us to sing and remember the hope that we have in Jesus. And would that hope carry us even this week to lead us to more obedience to you, to share that joy with others, God, who don't know or who don't know about Jesus, God. We ask this in his name. Amen.